Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm all right. I think to be absolutely truthful, it's a little bit cooler here in the Irish hills where we have just had even a sprinkle of rain than it is with you in London. For those listening in the future, let's hope it's cooled down, but it's very hot at the minute. Yes, we can't even talk about your shower of rain because we're so jealous of it that I won't be able to get past it to talk about anything else. So let's move quickly on. But I do, I do have to share with our listeners one thing, which is that we had to retake a little bit of last week's podcast. Because oh, you, oh, you're going to share this. I am. Okay. Thank because, you. Okay. <laughs> because Lucy started screaming suddenly <laughs> and the producer and I were absolutely, we thought something terrible had happened, but she had in fact just dropped an ice cube down the back of her neck it's actually it was jolly invigorating just, I bet it, was it was just a bit of a surprise have I broken the fourth wall Lucy and and, and really yes. I've yeah. breached your privacy your, your neck barriers next time, there, so sorry yeah next time you do something like that it's absolutely going on air let's be clear about <laughs> oh, that they love the behind the scenes stuff but they love the book stuff more although we do have to do a bit of gardening what's going on in the garden Little bit of gardening, and and I feel like we've got lots of business as well. But just a little hydrangea update, mm. um, which is just that a colleague of mine told me this morning that what you do for the blue hydrangea. So I checked because I thought it was going mad. You do put them in acid soil, in ericaceous soil, but obviously it still didn't work. She said you put in aluminium sulfate, 
and my esteemed colleague said it's something like it's like totes magic and it just okay. turns them blue so and how long do... does it take do we know did she say I think you have to put it like before they're in flower so this will be a long running one get back to oh. us dear listeners in 10 months and I'll tell you whether it's worked Oh, you see, I thought you meant they just suddenly... No, I don't think they do it overnight. I don't <laughs> like think it's a, like, like a litmus jacket. test. They'd suddenly well, that'd be good. I don't know, it. maybe. Clearly, I don't I don't know anything about it. But I'm going to try it and I will report back. All right, then, within a timescale of one week to ten months. And we'll see what okay. happens. We can live with that. We like to seed for the future, as it were. We have been put to shame, though, Lucy, have we not? We uh, really have. We have. Yeah. You, the listeners, don't hear our wonderful producer who makes this all happen and who said in that way that people do when they're about to announce something absolutely brilliant, very self-deprecating that she doesn't have a garden and she just listens to us talking about ours, but she has a balcony. And then what, Lucy? Well, and then what? And she said, oh, yeah, last, we had a harvest last night, spring onions, radishes and lettuce. I was just so jealous and I was saying I can't grow lettuce because it just it just gets demolished. And what's your lettuce like, Alex? Well, it's six foot tall. It's bolted. <laughs> it's too You funny. could enter it in a, into a show if it's a, as a giant example. Of what goes wrong when you let well. your lettuce bolt through inattention and poor gardening. But the thing is, day of the Triffid wise, it's too funny to cut down. I know it's going to be a boon to the compost heap, but it's so funny looking at this giant lettuce that I've just left it there. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Uh, Comedy value, that's, that's got a place in the garden as well. Um, Shall we talk about books, do you think? Let's briefly talk about books. Do you know what I thought that we should talk about again? Do you remember when our dear listener wrote in and said lots of lovely things? And also, why don't you do a little challenge that we could all get involved in? And we said, yes, what a brilliant idea. And we took up her idea, which was to say, why don't you all go and get a secondhand book and write it and tell us about it? And we'll tell mm. you about ours. And then it was Hay Festival and all sorts of things went on. And we completely forgot about it in our ruthlessly professional way. So I think we should relaunch it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we forgot. I, I'd say we were letting it percolate. OK, then we let it percolate. And now I'm what am I saying for the metaphor here? Now I'm pouring it out. Yeah, you're pouring out the brew now. So before, let's say before the end of July, let's get our books in for our summer holidays or our relaxing or whatever, or just lying on the floor face down, whatever you're going to do in August. Let's see if we can get some interesting and wonderful secondhand books. Doesn't matter where you get them from yeah. or how you get them, but tell us about them. The email address is letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk or you can tweet us at the TLS. I'm saying that. I'm pretty sure that's right. What else can you do? You can write into us if you like. Send us a postcard. Yeah, you'll find us. If you want to, you'll find us. And we would like you to. We I just thought we, we could have a gardening address called Lettuce at the TLS. <laughs> but I... Obsessed uh, with I lettuce. Obsessed now with lettuce. I don't think <laughs> I should go. Well, my own... I've got a sort of sideways bit of backlist, which is that I've been listening. I listen to audiobooks a lot sometimes while gardening. And I decided to do a bit of backlisty audio listening. I listen to a lot of crime, including the magnificent Ruth Rendell, as you may remember, because I introduced it into Jonathan Bates' very learned into Arcadia. Yeah. about Arcadia. Then yeah. I thought I'm going to go right back and I'm going to listen to all the Wexfords from start to finish. So obviously this takes us back in time quite a bit. And I, list, I was listening the other day and there is Wexford on a sort of stakeout and his sidekick, Burden, says to him, would you like a cigarette? 
Chief Inspector Wexford. And he says, hang on a minute, steady on. You'll be taking your jacket off next. We're not in Mexico, he said. <laughs> Which I have to say, I was not <laughs> expecting. And I was slightly bemused. I don't know, but isn't it great? It is great. And also, I didn't know this, how wonderful to have a sidekick called Burden. I know, clever. <laughs> he is his Burden. Anyway, there we are. Do not take off your jacket or light up a cigarette. Unless you're in Mexico. Unless you're in Mexico, yeah, apparently. Where it's fine. Yeah. Where it's absolutely fine. Now, we must get on, because this week we look ahead to this winter's Football World Cup in Qatar, with two books focusing on the intricate business of sport and politics in the Middle East. And Lucy plays outlaw to my Violet Elizabeth Bott as we delve into the life and times of Rich Mulcrompton, creator of the unforgettable, and by no means just, William Brown. But first, at the end of this year, the 22nd FIFA World Cup will take place in Qatar, an event that has prompted enormous preparations in the country itself and drawn the scrutiny of the outside world. And not only is it the most expensive World Cup ever staged, it's set to attract the largest broadcast audience in sporting history. But what's the wider context of sport in the Middle East? David Goldblatt has been looking at two books that attempt to find out and joins us now. Welcome, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, who else could we have? Because to set the scene, you have spent years and years studying football across the world. Can you give us a sense of how groundbreaking this year's World Cup is? I mean, on the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, if you imagine a country of just under three million people, a tiny country that no one knows about, trying to advertise itself and its values to the world through staging the World Cup. We could be in 1930 when mm. Uruguay staged the first World Cup to celebrate 100 years of its constitution and its emergence as a, a democracy with Latin America's first functioning welfare state. Of course, mm. nearly a century later, we're doing the same thing, but on a scale that is sort of unimaginable in 1930. I mean, Qatar, broadly speaking, has spent about $220 billion on the preparations for this World Cup at the most sort of expansive definition of new infrastructure and spending in the country over the last 10 years. And that is more than all of the World Cups and all of the Olympics ever of all kinds put together. That's quite That's a cool. number. <laughs> Can I ask, is any of that? stuff that whenever anyone hosts the olympics or the world cup there's talk about whether people will use the infrastructures and indeed the structures afterwards or is it just a sort of expensive folly is there any sense that they will be used and will be helpful and useful to the population of qatar afterwards well they'll certainly be used i mean you know between 50 and 60 billion of that figure is on building an entire new neighborhood in uh, Doha called Lusail around the stadium where the World Cup final itself will be held. And, you know, I'm pretty sure there'll be a few hundred thousand people living there in the next couple of years. So it most will definitely all be used in that regard or the new ports, the new airports, whatever. The stadiums themselves, which are probably about $10 billion worth of the spending. I mean, Qatar you know, will struggle to fill them very often, but they've been reasonably innovative and thoughtful about what to do with them. So at least five of the new stadiums will be massively shrunk, you know, from sort of 40 or 50,000 seat capacity to 
20,000 seat capacity. And a couple of them are being turned over to, you know, sort of grassroots projects and Qatari teams. The Education City uh, Stadium, you know, will be used as part of a whole bunch of social development and football projects. And the 974 Stadium, which is made of shipping containers, will actually be completely dismantled. And it will, you know, part of the seats will be sent elsewhere. So some reasonable thought has been given to it. I mean, that said, there will still be some gigantic and unbelievably opulent, expensive stadiums that are not getting very much use, but no worse probably than many of the other World Cups uh, of recent years. One of the things, of course, that the scrutiny has come because of human rights abuses, because of the spotlight on that, because of particularly the abuses of migrant workers. I wonder how you think that is, for a start, how is that being regarded in the country itself by the people who've spent all this money? And how do you think it's going to affect how we outside Qatar see the World Cup? It's a really interesting, complicated set of questions. I think it's really interesting in the sense that there has been a theory, a notion in the world of sports that if you stage as an authoritarian or a closed society, a international mega sporting event, you are exposed to international scrutiny. You are uh, forced to engage with a set of international norms around human rights and other issues that force change. And that was certainly the argument you were hearing before the Beijing 2008 Olympics and how we laughed afterwards at the complete ineffectiveness of staging the Olympics to make any kind of change in the way China operates, or indeed Russia with its uh, Olympics in 2014 and its 2018 World Cup. Qatar is different. Qatar is, on the one hand, open enough that access reporting by human rights organisations and newspapers much easier than in China or Russia. And Qatar is not big enough or powerful enough to ignore what The Guardian or Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International have to say in a way that the Chinese can just shrug their shoulders. And so you've seen a really interesting political struggle over the last 10 years. And at the end of it, we've actually got something close to, you know, the theory that didn't work before, which is that Qatar has dismantled its kafala, you know, migrant labor regulation and migration system and begun to replace it with something more modern, bureaucratic, impersonal. No one would say we're looking at a Danish or a Swedish labour market here. But there has been real and significant change. And that's been forced by the Guardian and so on over the last decade. So it's a really, so that's interesting that change has been forced on Qatar in that regard. As to how they feel about it in Qatar, I think this is something we often miss is that Qatar is divided. It's not actually a kind of unified position. The citizenry, although it's only 300,000 people, there are very significant political and social differences. And so there's one group of Qataris who are not happy about this. They like the old system. It really worked for them, you know, in construction and a bunch of other industries, people making really great money. On the other hand, there are more progressive Qataris who are saying, you know, we have to transform our labor market to bring it in you know line with international norms we're going to have a different kind of economy here over the next 30 years and this is the beginning of the process to transform and modernize it so they're supportive of that and that battle i think i mean it's been won i think by the reformers though you know what happens after the world cup is another matter 
one of the books that you've reviewed is a sort of much broader look at sport in the Middle East, isn't it? The Routledge Handbook of Sport in the Middle East. Yeah. And that kind of goes to the point that you were just making. These are not monolithic societies and the Middle East is very definitely not a monolithic region. And I was really interested in the points that you were making about how sport has been used to different ends in different societies. I mean, you found that an interesting part of the book, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, sport is such an interesting thing in the Middle East, but so politicised with a small P and a big P. I mean, that's the unifier across the region. Almost any sport, certainly football, and in almost any country, politics is entwined with not only the organisation of it, but the very meaning of the game. I mean, in Iran, you know, over the last 30 years, progressive candidates have used the mobilised support for the Iranian national football team as a way of hinting at their modernity. Whereas until Ahmadinejad, who was a football fan, conservatives were always, you know, associated with wrestlers, which was seen as a kind of much more traditional and theologically acceptable and indigenous somehow form of sport, whereas football was sort of dangerously foreign and uh, impious. So, you know, religion, politics, sense of national identity, local identity are all entwined in different ways with sport. And not only football, I mean, you make some very interesting points about judo, about cycling, about, of course, falconry, which, as we know, as you say, as a heritage sport in the Middle East is a huge deal, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of almost like, I don't know, grouse shooting in Britain. It's a form of kind of very conspicuous consumption, you know, a sort of almost invented form of traditionalism and a way of expressing, certainly in Qatar, but across the Gulf, your intensely local Gulf Arabic desert identity, you know, at the same time that these unbelievable kind of urban experiments are going on, you know, Doha in Qatar has grown from, ooh, you know, 15,000 people in the uh, early 1950s to 2.5 million nearly today. You know, people are responding to the explosive and disorientating pace of modernization by embracing what they think is the past. And falconry definitely mm. fits into that category. I was interested to hear about the tour of Qatar, the cycling, because I hadn't known there was any or that there was much tradition of cycling, but it was quite a big deal, wasn't it, the Tour of Qatar? I thought it was such an interesting article. I didn't, I mean, I knew that there had been a Tour of Qatar, but beyond that, I didn't know a thing. And um, I thought it was so interesting that Qatar actually proved to be a really difficult, challenging, interesting race for, you know, the European professional teams who very much embraced the kind of tough desert environment and these sort of intense and changeable winds that made it a real challenge and early in the season in cycling season an incredibly good warm-up for the spring classics as they're called in Europe which lead up then to the Tour de France and so you have really huge attendance and a kind of real affection and interest in Qatar and cycling I and mean, what I was really struck by as well is that it also built on and connected for a lot of people to a tradition of cycling in Qatar that existed before it all went private car, land cruiser crazy. I mean, now you wouldn't, going through Doha, you wouldn't want to be cycling anywhere. But back in the day, you know, in the 50s and 60s, before oil and gas money had completely transformed Qatar, it was absolutely the way people got around. 
so it was interesting yeah to know that sort of unearth a little bit of kind of almost archaeological background to Qatar. David, thinking about the second book that you've reviewed, The Business of the FIFA World Cup, puts us in mind of kind of the other aspect, which is not what's going on inside the country, it's what's going on around the world, where we will all be glued to our TVs. Now, broadcast rights and the way that the whole business of how we view and consume football is changing so massively. Where do you think that's at at the minute? So there's a little bit of that in the book on the business of the World Cup. We are changing the way that we consume the World Cup. I mean, certainly not everyone will be watching it on television. There'll be a lot of watching it on phones and computers and a bunch of other devices. David, so the, the young people in my life tell me that TV is just like for very old people, like <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, we very, watch TV. But, we but watch we're, TV like we're, we're you know, 30 or something, like really think... old people. <laughs> I think there is some that 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 is definitely uh, the case. I think there's also at the other, you know, that's a sort of there's another aspect of World Cup um, viewing is, is that to a great extent it's communal, and there's a lot of gathering around big screens in public spaces. I mean, one of the weird things I think certainly in England is that we won't be doing that this time around because. It's, you know, we'll be in pubs and clubs and whatever, but we won't be doing the big outdoor screens in the park because it will be November, December. The weather won't allow. But I mean, other parts of the world will be able to do that. I think that's a really, for me, one of the most interesting things about the way we consume the World Cup is that I am since 2002, when the South Koreans, you know, put up gigantic screens over Seoul and you had, you know, at one point, 7.5 million Koreans on the street in public viewing spaces watching the, uh, the South Korean team play. We've increasingly watched it in those kind of collective spaces, which produce their own kind of collective mania as well. And I think that's, it's disappointing that there will be much less of that. But I think that's the other end. While there's more individualised watching, you know, people squirrel away, you know, watching a tiny screen on their phone, there's also that desire for you know, being in a crowd and being together to watch these things. So you see both sides of it around the World Cup. And just for UK viewers, what kind of time will it be? Is Good it question. I believe that Qatar time. is three hours ahead of us. I think that they will be, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure they'll be setting the times of games so that you know, prime time, you're hitting seven, eight o'clock in Europe for sure. Right. So they'll be playing, right. I think we'll be getting games around seven, eight o'clock in the evening. And then, of course, in the early rounds, you know, where you sometimes have three games a day, there'll be ones that are earlier through the afternoon. But, you know, they're three hours ahead. So for, you know, Britain, it's pretty comfortable timing. Yeah, if not comfortable, comfortable weather. But I do think that a cosy pub in the depths of winter, what could be nicer than gathering to watch a World Cup? Okay. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of that. I mean, that's very Pollyanna-ish of me there. I love, I love an international tournament. I love the wall charts. I love the predicting the scores. I love the tense group games. It all kind of falls away for a bit for me once it goes to knockout stages. But these are serious books about a serious issue. But the end of your piece, I found this so fascinating. You end by asking why football has to bear the political weight that comes with something like this, a mega tournament, mm. and all the scrutiny involved. 
you asked that question and I guess I'd like you to answer it or at least <laughs> gesture towards an answer. I mean, why do you think that is? It is a really, even after 25 years of studying this and thinking about it, I am still slightly flabbergasted that the most popular cultural phenomena in the world is football. That football, always popular, you know, is now much more popular and much more present in more parts of the world amongst more people than it was 25 years ago. I mean, 25 years ago, you know, China, the United States and India are barely engaging with football at a popular cultural level. And now that is completely transformed. And that not just popular, but that football is asked, you know, to bear the weight of local, national, regional identities to carry and fill in for narratives around those things. So many things are kind of extraordinarily placed upon its rather narrow moral and ethical shoulders. So why? I mean... Some of it's class-based. Partly, it's, it's about class. Yes, I guess what I mean is when there were arguments, for example, about violence, about football hooliganism, when there are yeah. arguments about safe standing, etc. cetera, sure. uh, you know, fans abroad, there seems to be a particular way of talking about Oh, sure. Mass, I mean, that's a very kind of narrow kind of English perspective on it, mm, though, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. I yes, mean, our is. own, if we're thinking about why is it asked to do this more widely, I mean, I think there is just something about the game. There's something about the game itself. I mean, the idea I floated in the ball is round when I first tried to answer this question was, sure, this is something about football, about its simplicity, mm. its intuitive rules. It's a game of flow. It's a game of three dimensions. You know, you don't get too many goals, which is great because, you know, their rarity value makes them more emotionally intense and it gives a kind of narrative interest. There's a whole bunch of stuff about the dynamics of the game itself that I think make it really popular. But I did wonder if there's sort of something slightly, I don't know, deeper going on. And I kind of got there by thinking about Herman Hesse's Glass Bead Game which is a book that imagines, you know, a world dominated in a same way, sort of spiritually and culturally, on this kind of bizarre mathematical, musical, notational game that is played in it. And it reflects a very sort of quiescent, calm, balanced version of the world, not sort of raging like our own. And I just wondered, is there, what is, what's in the heart of football that speaks to that? And football is a game of, chaos, for mistakes, things are always going wrong. You cannot control the environment as an individual, as a team. It's always slipping through your fingers. And With it's in general, you... a tiny unit of scoring, an absolutely tiny unit of scoring yeah. that is that is quite rare. Absolutely. And therefore more precious and more interesting because, mm -hmm. you know, what's the narrative of an NBA game that's 118.99? Like, who knows? But with football, like 2-1, it's got a kind of narrative clarity, but also kind of complexity and variance. But I think also... football is about that responding. How do we collectively respond to uncertainty and chaos? And like that seems to me a kind of quite deep level where. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Most of humanity is at the moment, is thinking and struggling. And I just wonder whether that is part of depth of the appeal of football, is that it just speaks to something very profound and very universal on this planet. Do you think it's also, though, because it has all of that uncertainty and the drama and all of that stuff, which is absolutely real, and then it's wrapped up? You only have to deal with that for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours, whatever it is. Something will happen at the end of it. Something will be resolved. Mm. Mm. Definitely. 90 minutes is a really, it's the right time. Though, of course, you know, nothing is ever resolved in football. I mean, once you're sort of engaged with it, the thing is just relentlessly rolling but yes it has the punctuation of you know the game the tournament the season that brings kind of narrative coherence and closure along the way that's definitely part of its appeal on which note david from herman hesse which i didn't quite envisage we would be talking about the glass bead game but i'm very glad we did i have to ask you in this closed season, the most miserable time of all for the football fan, what are your hopes for Bristol Rovers next season? <laughs> <laughs> We've gone from a very universal theme to quite a particular one. There, yes, Lucy, let's that, go that's for it. the thing, the universal to the specific and back out again. <laughs> I really hope, I mean, obviously I hope they managed not to get relegated and just stay, you know, having got promoted last season. I just hope that, you know, Bristol Rovers collectively retains the spirit that has been made around this season, where I've witnessed two of the funniest, the most amazing pitch invasions. One, one when Forest Green Rovers got promoted themselves and uh, their pitch invasion was met by a comically absurd counter pitch invasion by um, a bunch of drunken Bristol Rovers fans. And then, of course, at the end of the season, when they went 7-0 mm. up in the final mm. game, and uh, there was a deluge of people onto the pitch, resulting in owner, captain and coach all begging the crowd to leave so they could finish the game and actually seal the result. And I just find the kind of transgressive exuberance and ludicrousness of Bristol Rovers and its fans, it's just like, 
it's a joy. It's such a rare thing in this world. So I hope in whatever form, that's what continues. David, I can remember watching that second pitch invasion and thinking, I wonder if I'm going to see David Goldblatt. Of course, you would not be on the pitch. That is not what we expect of our podcast contributors. And I'm sure that you, we wouldn't see you in that melee or fracker. But thank you so very much for coming on to talk to us about, about these two very kind of wide-ranging and complex books that you've distilled for us. Thanks, David. Thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. to come on the show why did a troublesome child called William Brown capture the hearts of generations of children not to mention adults and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, we recently celebrated 100 years since the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses and the first Bloomsday. Later this year, it will be the centenary of T.S. Eliot's first magnum opus, The Wasteland. But in between the two, have we missed a still small voice? One that says things like, I've got a garden. I've got Virginia stock growing all over it. It grows up in no time. And mustard and cress grows in no time too. I like things what grow quick, don't you? You get tired of waiting for the other sorts, don't you? This voice belongs, of course, to William Brown, the boy who was always just William. A new biography of his creator has come out and Sarah Curtis has reviewed it for us. And we're delighted that she's here today to help celebrate William's centenary. Sarah, many thanks for joining us. It's good to be able to read and think about William again. <laughs> it is, isn't it? You say in your piece that for many children, William was essentially... Harry Potter. In what ways was he Harry Potter? Well, in just that he was the book that we all read. I mean, girls as well as boys. I think my grandchildren have all read Harry Potter now, but none of them have read William. So was it as ubiquitous? It was just a given that everybody was reading it and everybody knew who he was and what was happening? Yes, I think it was. There was nothing to rival it. Could be argued there still isn't anything to rival it. And I have to say that Just William is a lot more fun than Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Harry Potter well enough. I conscientiously read the first volume because I have grandchildren who would be reading it. Mm. But yes, that's one of the delights of William. The scrapes he gets into are funny even to him in retrospect. 
Yes, yes. Whereas Harry Potter has a terrible time with all sorts of things happening to him. I wonder, Sarah, what you think your grandchildren might make of William were they to encounter him now? That's a good question. I, I, I must try and get them. They're a little bit um, on the other side, but I try. I ought to try and get them to read his. Um, I think the life is so different from their lives. I mean, they are, well, I think partly because they don't live in the suburban world where he lives, but everything is just so different. But I think from the point of view of using everything up and being quite mischievous with um, you know, trying to help and it all going wrong, uh, some of them would find it you know, quite um, understandable. Mm. Actually, one of the things, just as a sideline, one of the things I love about William is that even when he's not trying to do wrong, I just had a look the other day, at the one where he wants two dogs for his birthday. He has to go to a dancing <laughs> lesson, which he really doesn't want to do. And he, he's, his own dog is at the vet and they say, what do you want for your birthday? And he says, two dogs. And they say, well, you can't have two dogs. And they give him handkerchiefs and they send him off. And then one of his sister's admirers brings two pops and he sees them and goes, oh, how wonderful, lets them off. One of them herds a whole flock of sheep into the front garden. And the other one gets hold of all the undergarments, shall we say, of the little girls in his dancing class and has a wonderful time shredding all their tights and pants and things. He's not trying to make mischief, but actually it's just, it's absolutely wonderful how it turns out. Yeah, that's the point about him. He's never trying to make, he's always trying to help. He is yes. a sort of great example of the law of unintended consequences, isn't he? He, he just <laughs> he just doesn't have a great gift of foresight, we may say. <laughs> so, Sarah, what does Jane McVeigh, the author of this new biography, what does she tell us about Richmond Crompton's life? Well, she tells us that it was an extraordinarily ordered life. I mean, she went from school to university where she read classics. It's a very odd background for William, as it were. She was a scholarly person. She, whether because everybody was killed in the First World War or what, but she never married. And she was lame. She had polio. And she conjured William out of her imagination and it's um, extraordinary really because she was a classics mistress in a girls school and so William was something quite different from her experience as far as we know though there may have been young rascally William in her sort of suburban vicinity. Her life was I mean for a writer's life in a way I don't mean this disparagingly, it was quite steady, it was quite uneventful, wasn't it, as well as actually being wildly successful? Yes, she was extraordinarily modest. I mean, extraordinarily. I mean, people like Harold Millen sort of admiring her work. She never, never um, looked for recognition or honours, or, and she just stayed where she was, and her suburban, not, not to be disparaging, um, place and life. I think she was an admirable woman. Just to be sort of basic about it, did she then become quite rich? I don't think very rich. It's funny enough, the biography doesn't go into her earnings, as it were, mm. but she must have been pretty well off by the end of it. You know, by, by the time, the end of the 30s, um, the books were so successful. Not many people, except perhaps Geoffrey Archer or someone, would become terribly rich with their books, do they? 
No, she's no J.K. Rowling. We can say that. I think pretty. Yes, quite. Pretty sorry, that's the power, isn't yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what about her work? She didn't only produce William. Is that right? That she was always working on a William book and on a, a novel for adults as well. Yes, she wrote novels for adults, which I suppose people read. I admit I've not read any of them, but she um, had obviously a far-ranging imagination, and she wasn't particularly interested. The the William books weren't targeted at children to begin with. They were sort of um, for adults to laugh at, I think, the records say. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think adults absolutely enjoyed them. I know I still do and would, but that's a matter in some ways of nostalgia, I suppose, for reading them as a child. I'm not sure that they would have ever been the sort of first reading of an adult. I don't know. What do you think, Lucy? You're a huge fan. I am a huge fan. And actually, I've been rereading them again recently. I just think they are just as funny for adults. I mean, it might be more so because she, there's a lot of little, Diggs is not quite right because as you say, Sarah, it's not malicious. But it's kind of, she's got a twinkle in her eye when she describes people, obviously. So, and she's very much like that with the adults she describes. So William, you've got William and his gang, and we kind of know what they're like, and they reliably get into these brilliant, ridiculous scrapes. But the adults, she's pretty, she's very observant and very funny yes. about them as well. I, I do remember... It was the first time reading a description of Mr. Brown being in a bad mood one morning, and he was described as feeling a little liverish. And I thought that was a completely fascinating word when I was reading them for the first time. Of course, I now realise she means hungover. Uh, but <laughs> he'd been, you know, had a glass too many port the night before, perhaps. But at the time, I just thought, what does that mean, liverish? Uh, but she, and you're right, she did sort of conjure the world of the adults. Which is obviously more, not, more you know. clever as I would never have um translated that as it were. I would have thought it was <laughs> were all those things that you were meant to take out of sales, you were meant to take all sorts of things. Did liverish always mean hungover? I thought well, maybe that... it didn't. Maybe this is my current preoccupation. <laughs> maybe I'm sort of retroactively engineering it. That bears further research, I think. I think it's probably a very useful term, which covers all sorts of things, including... Might have meant rich food, mightn't it? it might exactly, but it, dinner. but it also would include having too many glasses of port the night before. Mm. I'm going to say it the next time I have too many glasses of port. It's much better than, than hungover. I have to say it as well, I have read, I am reading, in fact, a bit of one of her novels for adults because I was curious about them. It's completely different. It's still very detailed. But the feeling of it is completely different. There are little bits of observation which are very funny, but the whole thing is rather serious and a bit tragic, actually. The one I'm reading, which is called Millicent Dorrington, and it's kind of quite emotional and it feels much more conventional than than William. I suppose the thing about William is that it's a very conventional setting and then he just is anarchy within that. Do you think that's right, Sarah? Mm. One of the attractions of it is that even today it's recognisable sort of structure in which, I mean, you're the family and all right, we don't have cooks to torment anymore, but it's completely recognisable, the middle class, all right, the protective setting that William plays havoc within. That's one of the interesting things about it. I think that that remains, it's recognisable today and even his 
tricks are recognizable. I mean, on a terribly hot day like this, he would be playing mayhem with the hosepipe or something, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would, Absolutely. and it might not be a bad idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I read uh, somewhere that she referred to William as a bit of a Frankenstein's monster that she kind of couldn't get rid of. Did you get the sense from the biography that that she thought that William was kind of fun and the other stuff was the real work or not like that at all? She said though, specifically that it was just sort of work. I mean, she didn't claim to have invented a, a great um, comic or a great character for history. I mean, it, it, she just did it. I, I think she was the most attractive personality because she was so modest without being um, creepily modest, if you see what I mean. I mean, she um, knew, obviously, her sales must have told her how popular it all was, but she wasn't weighed down either by her uh, the popularity of William, of her achievements. I mean, she just sort of remained what she had always been. Mm -hmm. In the sense that she took the writing seriously, but she sort yes. of, she didn't claim that she was a great artist or anything like that. No, no, she got on with it. She worked terribly hard. I mean, she produced an enormous um, volume of work. Extraordinary. Admittedly, she didn't have other responsibilities. I mean, in the 30s life, I think, was very different to the 20s, 30s than it is now when people who is sort of parallel to her, have to do other things like, um, I don't know, dusting, keeping a house. Isn't it yeah. interesting to see it now? Obviously, this isn't how she would have seen it. As part of that, I mean, much like, I suppose, some of P.G. Woodhouse's writers, part of that interwar kind of period, it's evoking a sort of bygone world, isn't it? I mean, I know you, you've said quite rightly, Sarah, that, a lot of it is still recognisable to us, but a lot of it is so very different from our world. Yes, well, we don't have cooks and we don't have um, gardeners and we have very few chimney sweeps even, as it were. That's all we <laughs> finish. But on the other hand, we also have or had mothers and, um, you know, and sort of um, best friends like Ginger and... Once we had ambivalent relations with, like, you know, Violet and Elizabeth, and as girls, we always um, cast as girls, or too recently maybe, we knew who we were in the same way as those children grew up in set circumstances. I mm. think children today also do. Mm, mm, yeah. One of the really wonderful things about the books, uh, of course, and you mentioned this, Sarah, is how William speaks. How did she kind of create that? It's a, a difficult thing to do because it's completely distinctive, but it feels very natural, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, it isn't um, like any dialect. I mean, she lived and um, he was placed in the middle class, sorry. All his sort of elisions, it's almost a speech defect, the way he leaves things out but the mispronunciations are absolutely sort of you know wonderful and I, I love Violet Elizabeth's lisping <laughs> poor Violet Elizabeth oh she gives she gives as good as she gets I feel Violet Elizabeth 
<laughs> well, yes, I don't know. I think um, William gets through with it all. But it is extraordinary because I wonder if I'm right that girls read or the William books as much as boys. Certainly the girls I knew did. I mean, we didn't sort of think in those terms, actually. Of, um, and certainly none of us would have identified with Violet Elizabeth. Yes, I think no, that's absolutely, absolutely true. Not. Yeah. We sort Everything of ident I've... identified against her in a way, didn't we? We wouldn't want to be like her because she's sort of spoiled and petulant and, and mm. isn't part of the gang. She's trying to get in the gang and they don't want her in the gang. She is a worthy adversary, though. She's quite good in that in that way. Do you know what I mean? She's kind of she's someone for him to pit his wits against. I've read this. Other people saying that girls that read it but immediately identified with William. I don't even think it's a girl boy thing. I think it's just that he's having the most fun, isn't it? But she's not a worthy adversary because she resorts to tears and all those sort of um, things that, that a boy like William would never do. No, Which, I agree, but those are her weapons, and she uses them fairly effectively, I would say. Yes, she uses them quite effectively. Do you think anyone liked her or identified with her? I don't. No, no, I don't think anyone did. No, but I think she, but she was a good character to drive William bonkers. Yes, Absolutely. she was that, wasn't she? And I think she was very, it's a very good contrast, the naughty, well-meaning rascal and the goody-goody girl. I mean, that, yes. that, you know, absolutely right. Well, and also, but she wasn't the only goody-goody. But and actually, I think she's very fair about this because Hubert Lane is also completely insufferable and pretends to be very good when the grown-ups are around. And there's a lot of girls in there as well who William, who well, he, he likes his next-door neighbour. And there are girls that William gets on with very well. It's not that he can't get on with girls. It's that it's the goody-goody thing he can't bear, isn't it? It's interesting because he apparently admires Ginger's aunt because she's so pretty. I mean, it's um, nowadays, um, I don't know what that would be considered, whether he admires her grace and beauty. I mean, on the whole, he admires grown-ups who give him tips. You know, yes, or sweets. <laughs> Um, money, yeah, pocket money. But he says very firmly about it. she's he's lovely and he likes that. I love to, I'm very his relationship with the servants, with the cook, and all the people, because they have to deal with him actually much more than his mother does, really. You know, obviously, yes. Um, yes. there's one for one way where. He has to get sort of clean and dressed up because someone's coming to visit. And, you know, he does this. And how then within um, half an hour, he's somehow managed to jump into a rubbish dump and, you know, got everything filthy. One of the things I enjoy about it now is the, um, the picture of his life. And, of course, it was past even when I, I was a child. So even... Then one was interested in a different way of life, you know, past way of life. Mm, mm. Going back to the kind of the idea about how they talk, it made me think about the audio incarnations or reincarnations, because I think the audio books have been very important. Martin Jarvis is the man who does them now, and he's the absolute king of them, I think has been responsible for a revival in William's popularity but you mentioned that Kenneth Williams did him as well yes I read that that he'd done 
yes. Mm. They lend themselves to audiobooks very well, which is another, this is obviously a recent thing, the audiobooks, but uh, another reason for their popularity. It's the kind of thing you can listen to, you know, if you're not feeling well and you've got a day off school or something like that. It's like yes, perfect. You, can, you know, parents can use them instead of themselves for their children. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I do um, remember listening to Martin Jarvis as I was sat in a traffic jam for hours on the Westway. And that is sort of lasered into my memory. The traffic jam and the circumstances are gone, but Martin Jarvis just getting it so right with William. It's his kind of straightforwardness, isn't it? That's why we like William. He's a rascal and he's often wrong and he creates havoc, but he's sort of an admirably open book, I suppose. Yes, he's very versatile. He can change, I love the way he changes his ambitions. You know, one minute he wants to be a robber or something. And then he says, I think I'd sooner be a sweep because there's a chimney sweep doing the chimneys. The way he's open to new experiences and suggestions, and yet he's always William. Yeah, he's always himself. Um, yes. And finally, Sarah, I have a pet theory, not very original, I'm afraid, that comic fiction is routinely underestimated or, or even dismissed, the skill in it and the also the importance of it to people. Would you subscribe to my pet theory or, or not at all? No, I, I think comic writing is awful. I mean, look at some, you know, other things like Lucky Jim, or is that comic writing? I don't know. I mean, surely comic writing has always been valued in its own genre. Okay. Perhaps don't, we perhaps don't always realise how hard it is to do, I wonder. That's so, I think, to get the voices absolutely right. I mean, looking at, as I mentioned, Lucky Jim, I mean, to get sort of Dixon's voice and you know, everyone's what they're like it is an extraordinary skill and when it's something that Kinsey Amos was right to the end I think very good at um, echoing people's vocabulary as it were. Mm -hmm. And luckily we have still got lots and lots of William left to us and we are forever grateful for it. And very grateful to you, Sarah. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about just William today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a marvellous to be sent back to the books. have time for this week our thanks go to david goldblatt and sarah curtis and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.